And so today I want to invite you to John chapter 13 and verse number 31. We've been going through the book of John together. Uh, man, the Gospel of John is just a, a beautiful book of the Bible. It's one of my favorite. Uh, matter of fact, oftentimes when people are just saved, I encourage them, go to the book of John and see what God says about His Son. Uh, because we can learn so much about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God. He said so Himself. He manifested it while He was on earth. And we can worship Him today. And that's what we're, what we're here for, is that we don't serve a dead God, but a living God. God. Aren't you thankful? I'm thankful we serve a God who's not dead. My God's not dead. He's alive today. And John chapter 13 and verse 31, we're going to pick up here in the middle of this chapter, uh, and we're going to see the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Now, throughout history, people have identified themselves as followers of Jesus by different external marks. Think about this, if you will. Sometimes on our clothing, uh, like today, I'm wearing a lapel pin that says John 3.16 with a cross on it. Maybe you're wearing a cross, a necklace, ladies. Hopefully, uh, guys, we'll leave that with for our wives, amen. Uh, or earrings or anything like that, you know. But maybe there's some other external marking that you have, like a bumper sticker on your car. Or maybe it's a, you, you have a certain way that you dress. And I think Christians should look distinctive. Uh, I shouldn't look like everything else in the world. I should be a distinctly Christian in my life. But listen, these things don't mean much. Matter of fact, many years ago, the, uh, in, in, uh, when Christianity was first becoming commonplace, uh, there was a symbol that they would often use to be able to identify uh, with one another that they were Christians. They didn't use the cross, they used the ichthus, which is uh, just the, uh, this made an acrostic, which basically in English means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And uh, obviously we see the fish symbol in different uh, areas and uh, has theological overtones as well throughout Scripture. Christ fed the 5,000 with two fishes and five loaves. He called His disciples fishers of men. The Greeks and Romans and other pagans also used the fish symbol before Christians. And so the fish was maybe unlikely to cause suspicion for, uh, for the Christians in those times where it was very uh, commonplace for them to be uh, persecuted. And so oftentimes, because of the situation which they found themselves, a Christian, when they approached someone else they thought might be a Christian, would draw one half of that fish in the sand with their foot, and the other would come along behind them, and they would finish it if they were a Christian. And they would identify them with this simple symbol, or they would put it on their homes or their houses. And the unbelievers wouldn't know necessarily what this symbol meant, but today we can recognize it as a symbol that's synonymous with people who are Christian. Now, these external displays of loyalty to Christ are just symbols. And they're, they're, sometimes they're a little superficial. Maybe they're, you know, sometimes we put them on our Christian business card. I got a little fish symbol, a little cross on my business card, or I got that cross on my car as I weave in and out of traffic and I honk at people and all of those good things. And maybe not as quite as genuine in those moments. Uh, and I, I will say, if you do have a hillside sticker on your car, make sure you're not that guy. All right. But listen, there's something that's more important than just the outward symbol, and that's the attitude of the heart. Only those whose hearts have been transformed by the redeeming grace of God are His children. I can, I can I put all kinds of external symbols on, but unless my heart's been changed by Jesus Christ, it means nothing. It's that inner transformation that results in a changed life. The external fruits, which is seen in my behavior and in my life, Really, that shows forth that I am a Christian. I appreciate the Sunday school lesson this morning out of uh, James chapter 2. Brother Newland taught today as, we, as he just shared with us the reality that because I have faith, then I have works. My life reveals what I believe. 
Well, Galatians chapter 5 is one of those places where we have the fruit of the Spirit detailed. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, peace. You know, we look at those nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, and, and we breeze through those pretty fast. And maybe you have them memorized, but sometimes they don't always translate to life. Well, Colossians chapter 3 illustrates this a little bit more in Colossians 3 verse 12. He says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. He says in Colossians, he says, listen, church, there's going to be some detailed, some, some, uh, some evidences of a transformed life on, your, on the outside. You see, at the most basic level, the fruit can be summed up in one word. All that Colossians just outlined, all that our life should be is the word love. If you boil it all down, if you look back through that list and you can go through and say, yeah, that deals with loving others. That forgiveness deals with loving. Forgiveness or, or loving also deals with that forbearing. You know, sometimes people frustrate us, amen? If you've been married more than two days, you know that sometimes people frustrate you. But listen, above all of those things, Christ says that it's going to, uh, that there is this idea of love that is demonstrated in the life of a Christian's. Because we've been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, we can demonstrate love. Christ was questioned at one point in his ministry, what was the greatest commandment? What is the most important thing? And remember, at this time, the Pharisees loved to gather in, in their snack shop theological, uh, theological conversations, and they liked to gather there, and they liked to say, all right, what's the greatest commandment? I mean, they had over 600, so which one is it? I mean, and that would be an important debate. If I can only keep one, which one is it? And so uh, they posed the question to Jesus. They were looking to trip him up. What is the most important question we could possibly ask or, or, or commandment we could possibly keep? And Christ in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And say, listen, this is the most important thing. This, this right here, just love the Lord. And then he goes on, and, and the guys were probably shaking their head, and they were saying, yeah, we can agree with that to an extent. Yeah, that's, that's probably good. Good thought, you know. And, but then he said, and the second is like unto it. And they said, whoa, 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 what are you saying? There's one equal to it. And he says, yes, this is just as important. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And there's none other commandment greater than these. You know what he said? He was saying, listen, we love God, but that is demonstrated in our love for others. When we love others, then we're demonstrating our love for God. And so God only mentions that loving Him is important, but He states that equal to it and equal in value is that we demonstrate a love for our neighbor. And so Christ illustrated this multiple times in His life as He talked about the parable of the man who had fallen among the thieves. You remember this parable? The thieves came along and they found this man. They beat him. They robbed him. They left him by the wayside. And then along comes a priest, and a priest looks at him and crosses on the other side, didn't want to have anything to do with him. Then comes a Levite, one of his brethren, and it's surely a Levite or a priest would come along beside this guy and help him up and demonstrate the love of God because they're brothers. But again, the Levite passes far around him and tries to avoid him, uh, not sure if it was a trap or what it was. But then along comes a Samaritan, the hated Samaritan. The one that, man, the Samaritans were the outcasts of society. They were inbred with Gentiles, heaven forbid. And they were the ones that no one cared about. And this Samaritan, Christ said, demonstrated what it is to love your neighbor. 
And he came along beside this man who was beaten and robbed, and he helped bind his wounds, and he carried him into the next town, and he paid for the inn and for others to care for him. He said, folks, let me tell you, that is what he's talking about when he's saying love. Loving, not because he deserved it. Listen, I'm sure that this Jew, before he was beaten, before he was left on the, on the wayside, would have been just like any other Jew and to spit on the Samaritan and avoid them. Remember, Jews, a good Jew, if they were going from northern Israel to southern, they would go around Samaria because they didn't want anything to do with those people. It wasn't, they weren't just other humans, other people who God loved. They were just other people. And so the Christian today... God calls us and He reminds us, we who have been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, He demands and calls us to demonstrate our love for God by loving others. Romans chapter 12 is a great place to be uh, in, your, in your mindset regarding this. Romans 12 deals with relationships. Uh, a couple, three years ago or so, I preached a series out of Romans 12 called Right Relationships. Right relationship with God in Romans 12, 1, but that leads us to right relationship with others. And verses 9 and 10 says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. He says this is the kind of love, this is the kind of affection we should have toward one another. But then he contrasts that in Ephesians chapter 2 2 and verse number 3. Because he says, listen, just like God calls us to love, he says there's also the opposite and the unredeemed know how to hate. He says in verse 3, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. He said, before you were saved, this is how you acted. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. He said, listen, your whole life was consumed with hate. Your life was consumed with wrath and this anger. He said, that shouldn't be the same characteristics we carry today as a child of God. He said, there's a distinction. And so through all of this, we see that that the distinguishing mark of the believer today is not that of anger, not that of hate, not that of violence, but that of loving our neighbor. What a difference. What a difference that Christ begins to lay out here in John chapter 13 as we see this demonstrated here. And He calls us and He commands and He says, Listen, the people are not going to know you're a Christian because you have a bumper sticker on your camel. People are not going to know that you're a Christian because you have a certain mark on your home. People are going to know you're a Christian by your love. That's what it all boils down to. Not a selfish love, because that's no love at all, but a selfless love. And we're going to deal with that today. And let me just remind you that uh, last week we dealt with Judas. And Judas, who was the betrayer of Jesus Christ, in the moment when Judas could have chosen Jesus, he chose instead his own ambitions, and he rebelled against the Lord. And you know, he played great lip service. Even the other disciples, the other 11 that walked with him, had no idea that Judas was about to betray their master. You know, he played great lip service, but there was no follow-up. He was no genuine change in his life. We can be guilty of that too. But let me just remind you, obedience is the visible demonstration of genuine love for Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, what does that say, church? Three words. Is a... And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And he that saith, he abideth in him, ought also himself also to walk even as he walked. And so we come to this truth. This one that maybe is a little difficult to, to, to grasp, but God says, listen, your life will be changed as a result of the gospel. 
If you're a believer today, your life should be different than it was when you first accepted Jesus Christ. Now, I was saved as a, as a child, about five years old, and as a young boy, I, I tell you, I wasn't into drugs yet. I'd never robbed a bank, and I'd never, I never even, didn't even know anything about cuss words at that point in my life. But I tell you what, there was a visible change when God got a hold of my heart. My mom and dad will tell you there was a rebellious spirit there before that God helped to change in my life. There should be a change in our life. In Matthew 13, verses 3 through 7, Jesus depicted that false disciples... Uh, were like the seed that fell by the roadside and it fell on the rocky soil or on the thorns. Or, uh, and, and there was also, he compares them to the tares among the wheat or goats among the sheep. And he said, one day these will be separated out. You, cannot, you can fool man, but you can never fool God. The writer of Hebrews refers to those uh, who manifest an evil spirit as evil and unbelieving uh, by, uh, in their heart by falling away from God. And Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an un- evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You see, they are seen by unwillfully uh, or willfully continuing in their sin, even after receiving Christ as their Savior. Like Demas, who professed to know Christ but rejected Him. Or Judas, who followed Jesus but betrayed Him. In 1 John 2, 19, he says, Then it went out from among us, they that were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no uh, doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be manifest, that they were not all of us. He says, listen, there's an evidence in your life. It's hard, it's hard sometimes to dissect false disciples. Sometimes they mix in in the flock and in the fold, and sometimes it's easy, it's easy to be fooled. But I remind you that even, uh, even Christ, as he had his Judas, sometimes we might have that here as well. And so, but let me just remind you, false disciples can have the outward trappings of genuine disciples. Maybe they're mor- morally good. Maybe they have a knowledge of the Scripture. Maybe they serve in the church. But that doesn't change the heart. And that's where God looks. And that's what God cares about today. He cares about your heart not of the outward trappings, but about the heart of the individual and the heart of each, each of us here today. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, let me tell you that today you can put your faith in Him and be genuinely saved today. And that's really what it's all about. In John chapter 13, and we look here in, in just a moment in our, in our main text, and uh, we're going to see that, that God is going to work in, uh, in demonstrating to His disciples what that looks like. The Pharisees, they knew the outward appearances. They knew what it was to try to live a life... For, And Christ said, you're whited sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but you're rotten on the inside. You know, there's others that, like the rich young ruler who thought, well, I've got all of of my ducks in a row, and I've got all the the, the, uh, things in my life are lined up just perfectly, but he went away from Jesus Christ sorrowful. Maybe there's others as well. Christ warned that on the day of judgment that many will proclaim to have served him. Many did wonderful, many wonderful works, but they will not be saved. In Matthew 7... 22, he says, and many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? He said, Lord, didn't we do all this great stuff for you? And he says in verse 23, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What is he saying? It's not about the outward trappings, it's about the heart. Judas experienced that conviction of sin, but he remained unsaved. And today, let me just remind you, making a decision to follow Christ is not always a genuine a mark of genuine saving faith, but to demonstrate a love for God shows itself in repentance, humility, a commitment to prayer, selflessness, and above all, loving. John chapter 13. Would you look there with me as we look at the text here, as we look at the words of Christ 
And this opportunity we have to interact with him and the, apostle, uh, and the apostles here. In John chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? And Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, Will thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let's stop together and pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we thank you for the, this, this tremendous passage of Scripture that we're studying today. And we just ask you that, Lord, you would remove, uh, Lord, distractions and, Lord, confusion and allow clarity to come through the Word of God and through your Spirit that teaches. And so, God, we just ask you that you would give us uh, that desire to follow you with all of our being. Lord, that our lives would be transformed by the truth of your Word. And so, God, as we come to you, we just lean upon you when we say, God, help us. Lord, to guide us. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Beginning in John chapter 13, in verse number 31, as a matter of fact, and running all the way through the end of John 16, Jesus really gives this farewell address to those 11 apostles. And he begins to just be able to, to, to tell them some things. And, and he gives them a final charge to these men who have walked with him, have talked with him. He gives them and just begins to lay out for them some, some basic truths. He gives them some warnings. He gives them some highlights some dis- and some, uh, some promises and some commandments that they should keep. And in the opening section of this address, what we really see is that Christ highlights this distinguishing mark of their life. Something that should be uh, very blatantly obvious for all the world when they look on the life of the disciples. They should be able to look at these disciples and say, these men are Christians. As Christ prepared his disciples for his death, he would tell them that the greatest expression of love was seen in a man laying down his life for others, and then he would follow through on that in just a few chapters. So let's look first at this profound expression of love in verse number 31 through 33 here together. You see, love's highest expression is self-sacrifice. Now the world has missed that mark, and the world looks at love and says, listen, I will love you as long as I get out of you what I want, Right? But God says, listen, I will love you despite who you are. I will love you in spite of the fact that you're a sinner. I will love you in spite of the fact that that you've rejected me and you rebel against me. He says, I choose to love you. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God manifests his love to us. And then he says this, husbands, if if you want your toes stomped on, just let's lay them out there a little bit. Husbands, love your wife like I love you. Love your wife with that same undying affection, that same unconditional love that says, says, listen, I don't care how my wife treats me, I don't care what she says, but I choose to love her. One night in the home, of, there was an English family that, uh, that uh, they were uh, in their home and they found a fire in their home and in the frantic thought, they tried to get all the children out and, and the mother and the father were out and they realized we forgot the baby in the crib. 
Well, the mother, uh, that night she went back in the house and saved her precious child. She could not be restrained. She ran back in the flames and saved her child. Years had gone by and the child grew up and became a young lady. And the mother had, was pretty diligent about keeping her hands covered. You know, women used to wear gloves a lot. And she kept her, her hands always in a glove. And, and so the, the, young, the child that grew up to be a young lady had never seen her mother's hands. She'd always kept them covered. But one day, she kind of walked into her mom's room unannounced. And as she uh, walked in, she noticed her mom didn't have her gloves on her hands. And she looked and, and she walked over to her mother and her mother was sitting there trying to cover her hands and she saw the scars and she saw they were torn and she saw that they were uh, just mutilated by uh, the effects of the fire from years ago. Unknowing what had gone on, the child said, Mom, she said, what happened to your hands? And the mother looked at her child and she said, I guess it's time you finally know what happened. One night when there was a fire in our home, she said, you were in the cradle and we'd gotten everyone out and, and she said, and I realized that you were still in the cradle in our bedroom and I, I went back into the home, I fought my way through the fire and I, I got you and by that point the fire was so intense that I scooped you out of the cradle and I leaned out the, out the window and I, and I dropped you down below to somebody's waiting arms. She said, but the fire was so intense, I couldn't go back through the house. And so I began to crawl out the window. And as I, I began to crawl, she said, I slipped and I fell. And my hands were so badly burned that I slipped and I hit the trellis to, to keep me from falling. And when I did, it ripped my hands open and it mutilated them for life. And that daughter, she grabbed her mother's hands and she caressed them. She said, oh, your hands are beautiful, Mama. She said, how I love you for what you've done for me. You see, there's another whose hands were scarred, another whose hands were mutilated. His name is Jesus. You see, that's the love that he has for us. And John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You see, Jesus said, let me point you to my own crucifixion. Let me point you to my own truth that I love you. Now listen, the reality is that in life sometimes, even in our congregation, there's going to be people who reject us. There's going to be people who don't love us. There's going to be people that, that say, listen, I don't care about you anymore, but here's the truth. God will never say that to you. He loves you with an everlasting love. John chapter 17. As Jesus went to the crucifixion, it was the point of Christ's greatest humiliation, but it was also the event by which He was the most glorified. In his prayer to the Father there in John 17, he says, I have glorified thee on earth, talking to the Father. And he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee from before the world was. He said, Lord, he, says, he said, Father, as I'm going to the cross, I desire for you to get the glory. You see, his entire ministry pointed to the cross. His entire ministry was pointing to the fact that he loves us, he died for us, and he gave his life for us. And it made it the climax of his life that he lived perfectly in keeping with this, uh, this Father's will. Throughout everything he did, Jesus wanted to stay with the Father's will. With the cross only hours away, Jesus' thoughts returned to that fullness of the glory that awaited him. But I want to look at three statements that he makes here in these verses together. And the first of the three statements in John chapter 13 that I want to look at, it says, he said, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. These statements refer to his death on the cross the next day. And this cross appeared to be shameful to the world, disastrous, maybe a defeat for Jesus. But it was through the cross where he gave his life for sinners 
that uh, we're able to see that Christ's glory was the mo- was displayed most clearly in Acts chapter thirteen and verse or three verse thirteen. He says, "The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified His Son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied Him in the presence of Pilate when He was determined to let Him go." He said, "Listen, through His crucifixion." Jesus was glorified. How do how was uh, that happened? The Bible says a couple of ways here. I just want to share with you in Colossians chapter two and verse fourteen. Because of uh, the cross, His death purchased salvation by supply, satisfying the demands of God's justice for all who would believe on Him. He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that awesome? to think that Jesus Christ was willing to take that upon His own life. But we also see, secondly, that it brought glory to Christ because the death of Christ has also destroyed the power of sin. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. His death on the cross brought the, uh, destroyed the power of sin in our life. And thirdly, we see His death destroyed the power of Satan, ending the reign of terror. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil. Aren't you thankful we serve a God who brings victory today? Victory in Jesus. I'm thankful we can sing songs like that. We can be encouraged to get today as a church that we still serve a God who is glorified even in the worst of situations. But we also see not only was Christ glorified, but God was glorified in Him. And there's a couple of ways Christ's death glorified God the Father. First off, we see His death displayed God's power. All the forces of hell worked to keep and destroy Christ. And he was gloriously resurrected. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, Who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. We also secondly see that Christ's death declared God's justice. The penalty for sinners violated His holy law, and it had to be paid. Isaiah 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The justice that was demanded was paid on the cross of Calvary. And I'm grateful that He was willing to do that for us. I could not have done it on my own. Thirdly, we see that Christ's death reveals God's holiness. Never did God so clearly manifest His holy hatred for sin than in the suffering and the death of His Son. You see, the Father loved the Son with an infinite love, and yet when Christ became a curse for sin and for believers on the cross, the Father, who too was holy and pure, He he was unable to look upon Him even. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13 says, Thou art purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thou the tongue of the, uh, when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he. You see, fourthly, we see that Christ's death expressed God's faithfulness. From the moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion until the cross of Christ, God had a plan to deal with that sin. God said, listen, back in Genesis chapter 3, He made a promise that there would be a Redeemer, and Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise. You see, God keeps His promises. He's a faithful God today. Fifthly, we see that Christ's death was the most powerful demonstration of God's love in all of history. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
You see, that's the glorious thing. Jesus Christ was glorified through the death, and the, God the Father was glorified through the death. And then we see this last statement, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. So this last statement looks beyond the cross and to the exaltation of Christ to the right, Father's right hand. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 says, who being, in the, uh, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So this coronation of Christ and the resulting victory over sin and death brought Christ's joy in the suffering. Remember Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, as, as he went through that enduring of the cross, there was joy there because he knew that it would save souls, but it would bring glory to the Father. And all of these things, we see that Christ, this, this, uh, the death of Christ on the cross looked forward to that one day fulfillment. In Philippians chapter 2, we're reminded that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the disciples loved Christ deeply. And they depended on Him totally in their life. They knew that, uh, that He would be leaving them, and this thought that He would leave them was painful, and it was frightening for them. And so Christ was reminding them, listen, this is needed. This is something that we must be prepared for as we go forward. And John chapter 10 and verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. It says, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He said, I came to die. This is my purpose in coming. It was at the cross. The love of God through Jesus Christ was put on full display in an eternally unique way. And with this supreme example of love, Christ tells them, you should love as well. Let's look at this preeminent example here. We see the expression, and now we see this example here in John chapter 13 and verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. The Lord's charge to the eleven apostles here, in one sense, was not new. He says it's a new commandment, but really, if you look to the Old Testament, we see this prescription for loving, like he describes here, was already there. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. This echoed what Jesus Christ had said. And also, he said the second was likened to it, Leviticus 19 and verse 18. He says there, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Jesus Christ reiterates that later in the Gospels. So it wasn't a new commandment in the sense that it presented anything new, but it was new in that it presented a higher standard of love. He said, Listen, it's not just based upon our idea of love. It's not Hollywood's love. It's not uh, my selfishness that's displayed here, but Christ's love now that it's based on. You see, the love of God that he's dealing with here is a love that was, uh, that was based on the love of Jesus. This demand to love like God demands for us to look at the cross and say, look what Jesus did on the cross, and that's how I must love my neighbor. That's how I must love my wife. That's how I must love my children. That's how I must demonstrate love to the disciples and the apostles around me. So let's look at this example, if we can. Because Christ's example of selfless, sacrificial love sets the standard for all of our life. D.A. Carson wrote this. He says, the new commandment is simple. Simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. He said, the more we recognize the depths of our own sin, 
the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher His standard appears. The higher His standard appears, the more we recognize our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our own sin. So Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And he points it back to the cross and given himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. And so this, this, this type of love, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is described there. He says, Charity suffereth long, is kind, is envieth not, evaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. It beareth all things, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things, and endureth all things. And so the Bible talks about what this love is supposed to look like. And we, often we talk about agape love and phileo love and, and these different things. But Jesus, we don't have to go to the Greek to be able to understand what the Word of God says. We see here that God says, listen, this is what your love is supposed to look like. And as we bear it out here in this place we call church, what a, what a difference it makes in we, as we share the gospel. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 18, he talks about the love that we have through God. He says, there is no fear in our love with God, but perfect love casteth out fear. Think about this. When, when love is not perfect, and maybe there's a demand that cannot be reached, there's fear. Well, I can never live up to their standard, therefore I'll never have perfect peace in this marriage. I'll never have perfect peace in this relationship. But you see, the difference with, our, with God's love for us is, it didn't demand for me, it gave willingly first. But God commanded His love toward us and while we get sinners. He said, let me demonstrate my love to you first and foremost. This is the kind of love that you're supposed to have. It doesn't demand, it offers instead. We don't fear the loss of love for, uh, of God. He says in Romans 8, 39, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. There's, there's not a, a promise that he's ever broken because Titus 1, 2 tells us that God cannot lie. There's peace in this kind of love that God offers us. And then he gives us this command in 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God so loves you with this kind of everlasting love, if he, God so loves you with this kind of undying, selfless love, he says, we ought also to love one another. Man, what a sacrificial, humble spirit. What an incredible uh, calling we have. It, it requires for us to lay down our pride and our ambition and say, all right, God, I'm going to follow you. But let, let's also look at this loving example of forgiveness. Because when Jesus Christ came, he demonstrated his love, but he also demonstrated it through forgiveness. The two greatest loves and two greatest ways we can show love as Christians is first... Be willing to apologize and seek forgiveness for those we've wronged. And secondly, be willing to grant total forgiveness. That's hard, isn't it? But it's commanded. It's not an option for Christians. Well, I, I don't like uh, this guy over here, so I'm not going to forgive him. But I like him. He's a pretty good old boy. He does me some good, so I'm going to forgive him over here. God doesn't give us options in forgiveness. And He doesn't say, well, I'll forgive you, uh, but you know, I'm going to hold it over your head for the rest of your life. God doesn't say that that is biblical forgiveness either. And so in light of the eternal forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ and that comes through Calvary to us, Christians then should be eager to forgive the temporal offenses that we face and that are committed against us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see, if you follow a leader, you're going to follow His example, right? 
So, for example, the followers of Islam, uh, their leader was one who was see, often seen as an aggressor carrying a sword and demand, who demanded allegiance uh, to his God. And as a result, those that follow Islam today also pick up uh, the proverbial sword and, in order to force others to follow their faith. But those who follow Jesus see an example of total forgiveness. If you look at Christ's life as He laid down His life on the cross, He from the cross pulled Himself up and stretched Himself out so He could cry out, Father, forgive them. And that's the love of Jesus. The ones that nailed Him to the cross, Christ cried out for their forgiveness. Psalms 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far have He removed our transgressions from us. That's the kind of forgiveness that God gives us. And He says in the same light, He commands in, in uh, Ephesians 4.32, He says, uh, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Forgiveness in our life is not optional. If you're going to remain in the will of God, you must be willing to forgive. Thirdly, we see this loving example of outreach. You see, God's love doesn't just stay here, but it goes out and it goes into the world. And 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, toward all men, even as we do toward you. And then in Galatians, he said, As we have therefore the opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who have the household of faith. You see, the Lord says, This kind of love will have an effect on our lives. The world will hear and know that we are believers. Francis Schaeffer said, The, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world upon His authority. He gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward Christians. You see, our love for other believers assures that uh, that believer and his faith is genuine. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death into life, because we love the brethren. Let me just, just make this statement very boldly here. If there's someone in the congregation here today that you can't love or minister to or, or get along with, then there's a, there's a problem there. And God says, listen, you're in sin when we allow those hindrances to hinder our love toward one another. May we choose to, to love. May we choose to be able to demonstrate that same uh, powerful love. And I'm just very quickly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, bring this to a close this morning. But I want you to know that God, He loves us from the cross. He loved us from the cross. He cried out for our forgiveness. And today, He wants you to remind you that it extends, His love for you extended all the way to the cross. And it goes all the way through eternity. There was a little, there was a, a problem class and uh, a teacher was called in and uh, and as this teacher was a, kind of a scrawny little fella, he was kind of nerdy little guy, and, and he came into the class, and he was talking to the superintendent, the superintendent said, listen, I've got all kinds of problems with these boys, and I don't know if you're up to the task. He says that every teacher that comes in, they literally beat the teacher, and they send them packing. This is years ago, obviously, and so the teacher said, well, I don't think I'm going to have any problem, but he said, but thank you for the warning, and he, he said, I'll risk this. And so finally he appeared for, for duty uh, uh, in the classroom and he came in and, and one big fellow that was in there was named Big Tom. And this, this guy, Tom, said, and looked at this scrawny little teacher and he told his classmates, he says, I won't need any help with this guy, I can lick him all by myself. Well, the teacher said, good morning class. He says, we have come to conduct school today, but before we get started, I want you to know I want a good school, but I don't know how to do that unless you all help me. 
said, so what we're going to do today is we're going to make a list of rules. He said, we're going to make 10 rules. You guys are going to help me make that. Uh, and so just holler out, what are some good rules that we ought to have? Well, somebody yelled up from the back of the class, well, no stealing. So he wrote on the, on the chalkboard, number one, no stealing. Number two, someone else hollered out, be on time. And so he got up there, number two, be on time. And he went down the list, and they finally had 10. And he says, now, he said, he said, we've got 10 rules here, but no law is good unless there is a penalty attached. So what do we do with the one who breaks, uh, breaks the law, breaks our rules here? Well, the class hollered out, well, beat him across the back 10 times without his coat on. And well, the teacher looked at the boys and said, well, that's a pretty severe punishment. Are you ready to stand up to it? Is this what you really want to do? And so the class all yelled their assent, and afterwards the teacher said, all right, school comes to order, it's time to get started. We've got our rules, we've got our, we know what's going to happen if we break them. Well, a few days later, old Big Tom found that his lunch box had been stolen. Someone took all the contents, and so he hollered out, somebody stole my lunchbox. Well, they did a little searching, a little research, and they found out it was a little boy named Jim. Jim, who was a little skinny kid, and, uh, you know, had his little coat on and, his, and, his, and, and was sitting in his desk there. And, and, and Big Tom said, I want justice. I want my, my lunch back. Well, Jim came to the front of the class, and the teacher said, Jim, did you steal the, the lunch? And Jim said, yes, I took the lunch. And he says, you know what that's going to demand? He said, yes, sir. He says, you need to take off your coat. And he said, please, teacher, don't make me take off my coat. He said, no, you need to take off your coat. That was the rules. You helped make the rules. This is, this is what y'all decided. And he says, please, teacher, don't make me. He says, this is what was decided. And so the little boy began to unbutton his coat. And as he took off his jacket, the class saw that he didn't have a shirt. He was just standing there in his britches. He, the teacher was thinking, man, how in the world, how in the world could I do this? He said, Jim, how come you don't have a shirt? He says, well... He said, my daddy died, and I only have one shirt. Today's wash day, and mom didn't let me wear it. She's washing it. I got it home, and she's washing it. So listen to this. The teacher thought, man, there's no way. I just can't do that. And so with a rod in his hand, he was about to administer the punishment, and just then Big Tom stood up. He said, teacher, if it's possible, he said, I'll take his stripes for him. Well, the teacher said, oh, thank the Lord. Somebody is going to come and help us. Well, this big Tom came to the front and took his coat off and he stood there, braced himself on the desk and the teacher said, class, are you okay with the substitute coming in to take the stripes for, for Jim and his sin that he's committed? He'd broken the law. And the class assented and the teacher began to administer the punishment and, 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 and to whack on, on his back and to give him five stripes and, and, the, and the rod that he was using had broken. And by this point, the class was in tears Little Jim wrapped his arms around Big Tom. And he said, Tom, I'll never forgive you. I'll love you till the day I die. We've broken every single rule. We deserve eternal punishment. And Jesus Christ took your scourging. He died in your place and offers to close you with, clothe you with his garments of salvation. Do you love him today? Are you willing to say, God, I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Will you fall at his feet and tell him that you're ready to follow him? Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reality is that today you can know the love of God.
when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head just for a moment this morning? In just a minute, we're going to sing a song, and as we do so, we're going to have an invitation. And during the invitation, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to respond to God. Respond to His leading in your life. And maybe you feel this, this urging in your life, and maybe it's like pounding on your heart. You say, you know, you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to get that right today. Stop playing the game. Stop just pretending. But today, God says, why don't you come the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will let me in, I will enter in. That's his promise. And he invites you today. Christian, maybe you have had a rebellious heart and maybe anger and, and bitterness and hate. Listen, this altar's for you just as well as it is for the lost. You don't have to keep that there in the pew anymore. Today, it's time to say, God, I repent of my sin. God, I, I just desire to come to you today with a heart that is made whole by Jesus Christ. And so, as we sing this invitation, we invite you to respond. And so, Father, please, Lord, would you work in this moment. This is your time. In Jesus' name, amen.